Christmas, when the world starts to turn on its hinges. I hope I can make you see what that text is all about, that title is all about, rather, as we work through these words from Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, the first eight verses. Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. Hope in one form or another, never come to church without a Bible. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea, let me change the slide if you're following along here. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him, that's John, in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. John was clothed with camel's hair. He wore a leather belt about his waist. And he ate locusts, wild honey. And he preached. Would you, would you go hear a preacher like that? And he preached, saying, After me, those words are important. That one. After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray, church. Christmas. It's too big for us to get our heads around properly unless you come by your Spirit. We have the revelation of your Word, and then we have the Holy Spirit to cause us to treasure your Word. We can read it. We can understand the verbs and the nouns all by ourselves, But we can't treasure the truth in our hearts unless you come, Holy Spirit, and tilt our minds, incline our hearts, the psalmist said, in the direction of your truth. We pray it all the time, but especially at this Christmas season, unwrap your word in our hearts, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I need to make just one introductory comment. There are people who are troubled by Mark's reference to the prophet Isaiah in the second verse, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Uh, the feeling of many is Mark has blundered here. If you want, I, I have no grudge here. If you can go home this afternoon and you can YouTube, just do, do for example, just do Bruxy Cavey, Inerrancy, Mark, and watch the video that comes up. You don't need to take my word for it. He just clearly says this is an example of 
we have an errant scripture, not an inerrant scripture. The critics like that, they say the quote is from Malachi. It's not from Isaiah. And so they will boldly say, let's just be honest about it, there's no need to cling hopelessly to these naive notions of inerrancy any longer. I disagree with those comments, and I don't think it's unloving to say so. If one position can speak upright, then the other ought to be able to. It's called the marketplace of ideas. And while I think that kind of edgy talk generates internet hits, I think the speakers are probably all aware, or at least should be aware, Mark's words are in fact a a composite quotation from Isaiah 40 verse 3, Exodus 23.20, and Malachi 3.1. It's not the topic this morning, and I'm not trying to get too technical. But these passages, those three passages, are all used by Mark in that one reference. They're all used together because the, um, the exegetical tradition of the rabbis in these texts was usually grounded around the conviction that the messenger of the covenant, to which they all refer would culminate in the visible return of Elijah before the great day of the Lord. And so Mark saying he's referring to Elijah is no more in error than if you asked me if Rini was in the car with me today and I said, in fact, yes, and I had Rini and Braden and Jack in the car. But if you asked me if I had Rini in the car and I answered yes to your question, it's not an error. It's the truth. There were more with me than just Rini, but I'm not in error telling you Rini was present. Mark needs no defending here. I think they all know that. And I think the church needs to know how to engage with those kind of arguments when they arise. All of this talk about the return of Elijah, that's a pretty good place to launch into today's teaching. Because, in fact, all of Israel was leaning into the words of this cluster quote from these Old Testament prophets. They had heard the prophets tell them that they were waiting for the return of Elijah. All four Gospels, all four of them, affirmed that Elijah had come, but he had not returned in the way the Jewish people had been thinking. John the Baptist was the coming Elijah. All four four Gospels say that. Look again at our opening text. Mark 1, 1 to 3. The beginning, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written, see here, in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Are we a bit surprised that Mark announces the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ and then says nothing immediately about Jesus at all? Did you notice it? It's strange. 
for that matter, do we find it a bit strange that the closing words of the Old Testament, at least our Old Testaments, they wrap up with the promise coming, not first of all of the Messiah, but the promise coming of John the Baptist. You can look at that in Malachi. Don't take my word for it. Behold, I will send you, there it is, Elijah, the prophet, before that great and awesome day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. John the Baptist is heralded. And then, period. 400 years of prophetic silence. Don't take those prophetic words about Elijah lightly. The Hebrew Bible doesn't end the way our Old Testament ends. It ends with First and Second Chronicles as one book. And what you're witnessing here is the biggest difference in our Bibles. The Christian order of these Old Testament books, it takes its cue from the interpretation placed on these prophets by our Lord himself. In a way, Jewish doctrine has never fully accepted. Jesus saw all these prophets pointing to himself. And so our Old Testaments end with the recorded words of prophetic anticipation. The Old Covenant leaves off in the order of our Old Testaments. It leaves off anticipating the Christ. And that's why our Old Testament doesn't end with Chronicles. That's why it ends waiting for the Messiah. Only the last words are about John the Baptist. So all through those 400 years between the Testaments, the Jewish people were waiting for Elijah, who, you will remember, didn't physically die, was caught up, translated by God, and the expectation was he would, he would return. He would return as he left. Because his grave wasn't anywhere. And his return would initiate the final age. The final triumph of God. And here's the main thing. Here's the main thing to notice. Elijah's return would set the end in motion. Once Elijah returned, the next person to return was God. The end would arrive. Wrong would be righted. Enemies would be put down. Sin would be judged. Justice would reign. Righteousness would triumph. Only the Old Testament Elijah didn't arrive. John the Baptist did. We, we can't imagine the scene, no matter how often we have read it. John, John bursts on the scene, electrifying the crowds with the announcement, get this, the kingdom of heaven, of God, is at hand. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. So, so everything the people had longed for, everything the prophets had promised, 
It was here. Every one of the four gospel writers agree on this. They all bear witness to the fulfillment of all those words about the coming of Elijah in the person of John the Baptist. In fact, in our text, Mark actually stuns his readers with his opening words. The beginning. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then talks about John the Baptist. Think about that. There is no gospel story unless you start with John the Baptist. There is no Christmas story coming to the church that doesn't start with this insect eating, unshowered, wild man, John the Baptist. Now, here's my Christmas question, and here's where we're going in the rest of this teaching. My microphone is driving me nuts. I'm sorry. Here's my Christmas question. Why can't the gospel come without John the Baptist. Why, why does everyone's hair have to stand on end before we're ready to see the baby in the manger, that holy infant so tender and mild with radiant beams shining from his chubby little face? Why, why does the gospel, why must Christmas come after John the Baptist? That's my question. Point number one. John reminds us that while the gospel reaches every culture, it accommodates none. When our girls were little, we used to buy advent calendars. And they were covered with little doors. And each week of advent, depending on the calendar, some each day, you would open another little door on the calendar and there would be a little picture and a verse and most importantly, a little piece of chocolate. And even though in the liturgy, Advent contains, get this, two weeks of teaching on John the Baptist, I might be proven wrong, I have never seen an Advent calendar with John the Baptist in it. Never. I've looked at a lot of them. We might as well admit it. It's hard to know what to do with John the Baptist. John the Baptist didn't fit into his own time, and he doesn't fit into ours either. In fact, that might be the most striking feature about John. He doesn't fit anywhere. He's this visible reminder of, of what it is to be sort of prophetically out of sync with his own culture's values or our culture's values or any culture's values. He, he's a model of a person who is single-mindedly tuned into the kingdom of Christ. Find me another purpose in John the Baptist's life other than getting everyone ready for Jesus. 
His whole life resists anything that would distract from glorying in Christ. Isn't that John? I mean, he is a picture of life stripped down to essentials. Not just his fashion, but everything about him. John models lifestyle repentance in his very bones. Years later, baby Jesus, all grown up, would repeat verbatim John's holy words. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. John carries this repentance in his bones. Actually, he carries it in a way sinless Jesus never could. And that's why the gospel must begin with John. We need John the Baptist. You look at John and you're looking at resistance to compromise. Take the person of John the the Baptist, place him in any time, in any culture you choose, and he just doesn't nestle down very well. That's why John features so prominently in all four Gospels. Oh, it's true enough. Christ's kingdom comes a-flowing with grace and abundance. The worst of sinners is invited. But John comes first. We're not to be fooled. Repentance has to run deep. There are no compromising entry points into the kingdom ushered in with that little baby born in the manger. Secondly, we need John the Baptist to account for the unrelenting wickedness still opposing the kingdom of God. I hope I don't step on toes, but some of we sing some of the most delusional songs this time of year. Have yourself A merry little Christmas. Let your heart be light. From now on, our troubles will be out of sight. Have yourself a merry little Christmas. Make the Yuletide gay. From now on, our troubles will be miles away. Does anybody really believe this? All our troubles will be miles away. How are we going to account for millions of people singing something not a single one of them sincerely believes? What is at the root of such truth denial? Maybe we're grasping at straws. Anything, anything that makes me feel good for a while. Anything that calms, anything that soothes. Reaching for anything that will bring some kind of temporary relief from the jarring reality of the world we have to live in. Here you sit this morning, and your troubles aren't out of sight. And oh, how you wish they were miles away, perhaps gone, never to return. But they aren't miles away, or feet or inches, or centimeters. Your troubles are pressing in. They're clawing at the fringes of your life. Unemployment. 
sickness, loneliness, guilt, regret, sleeplessness, worry, fear. This is where John the Baptist comes on the scene with a pretty shocking message of hope. Mr. Advent, he has a message of Christmas realism that helps speak to troubles that aren't out of sight and that aren't miles away. This scruffy Elijah clone is is bursting with an announcement for troubled-filled hearts and a trouble-filled world. Look at these words. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Not chopping, but, but it's laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is might, mightier. I love that. Mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor, gather his wheat into the barn, and the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is the text I had in mind when I titled this teaching Christmas, when the world starts to turn on its hinges. I said starts to turn. See, by the time John utters those words, Jesus isn't a baby anymore. He's well on his pathway to redemptive sacrifice and resurrection. He's about to conquer sin and death. The axe is laid to the root of the trees. All of it's just beginning. Listen, listen for the big squeaky hinges. Something revolutionary is coming. That's what he's saying. And, and John has his usual pungent way of seeing some of the details through the limits of his own understanding. Something is unfolding in Christ. It's not the end. It's the beginning of the end. It's not done. Right now, John says, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Do you see that picture? The axe is not doing the chopping yet. The trees aren't felled. Not yet. But, but the old is about to be chopped down. The new is about to dominate. It's not fully here yet. But this massive, get a picture of a massive door like on a castle or something with big old rusty hinges this massive door of the old age is just just starting but it's moving i submit to you there's a reason you can't get to christmas without john the baptist not if you're using your bible we have never needed John the Baptist more. We need someone. 
with a vision that keeps us all from domesticating Advent. He's the one telling us God, God has put a death sentence on everything that is opposed to his will. He's the one telling us we need to keep looking to the future. That all that opposes Christ is doomed. That all who look prophetically to the future will see the glory of another kingdom fully come one day. That's John the Baptist. The axe, it's already at the root of the trees. Oh, how we need John. He stands, he stands boldly on the cutting edge of a new beginning. To all who are weary of corruption and greed and lying and immorality and dashed hopes and unanswered prayers and unfulfilled desires, John speaks. He says, church, all resistance will meet the unstoppable force of the one whose sandals John isn't worthy to carry. Mightier than I, John says. The axe is now at the root of everything that will oppose Christ's final reign. The whole corrupt tree is going to fall. It's not the end yet, but it's the beginning of the end. Point number three. We need John to remind us the coming kingdom has a present king and we are under his authority. More than anything else, John is a man who stays at his post. That's John. John is constantly on mission. In the face of a posh religious institution before whom he may have been able to make a name for himself, not John, his only concern is exposing sin and corruption, pointing to the Lamb who will take it away. John can't be bribed with praise or intimidated with power. There's not an ounce of compromise in John. And that's why there's no Christmas without John the Baptist. In the face of danger, John's the one who's going to tell a king it's a sin to sleep with his brother's wife. It's it. No matter, it will eventually cost him his life, his head, his head barbarically served up on a platter along with the rest of the sandwiches. John's at his post. Second only to our Lord, he may be the most single-minded man ever to live. He never switches subjects. He won't be silenced. And again, there's no Christmas before John the Baptist comes. None without his example. Christmas people, in the true sense, are never going to have an easy time of it. That's why we need John the Baptist. We are constantly being called to point to another kingdom, another reign. It means relinquishing what most people cherish, and it means devoting oneself to what most cultures think of as a waste of time or intolerant or unacceptable. Advent isn't for sissies. That's why you need John the Baptist. 
And yet, if our Bibles mean anything at all, all four Gospels tell us there is no Christmas Gospel coming into the manger until John the Baptist comes first. He speaks before we ever hear a word from our Lord. And he tells us the biggest news ever. He says the baby in the manger only seems sweet and cuddly in the the carol. So, listen closely. Listen closely on that silent night. And if all the angels just for a minute stop singing, you might hear something you can't identify. So far, it's just a faint, low, grinding, squeaking sound in the background. But this whole fallen world is starting to turn on its hinges. The second advent is going to complete what the first advent started. And it is unstoppable. John says, the one, he's mightier than I. He's mightier than I. Get ready, church. The world is starting to turn on its hinges. There's a bigger change coming than anybody can imagine. And it is unstoppable. And all God's people said, 